Hello, and welcome to the Psychic Stories podcast, encouraging conversations about mental health. Today, I'm speaking to Hakeem Allen. Hakeem is the founder of the Anti-Racist Social Club that works to create spaces and resources for education, and open dialogue with white people and non-black people of color about becoming anti-racist. They also host corporate workshops for building anti-racist organizations, equipping senior leadership with diversity and inclusion best practices, improving recruitment and retention, and reshaping corporate culture to be more inclusive of marginalized groups. Hakeem, hello. Hello. How Thank are you? I'm, I'm good. Um, and I'm actually meaning that when I say that. I think oftentimes people will just say, oh, I'm fine, when they're yeah. really not. And had you asked me over the weekend, I would have said I was feeling very run down and like exhausted. And it was actually really important for me to like realize that and take some time to yeah. just kind of like de-stress. And so I ended up going to an amusement park uh, with my best friend. Nice. In the week. Lots and of fast rides. Yeah, in like no lines because it was just like not the best weather, but it was good enough. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, it's like pizza, you know, it's like it's always just good enough, even if it's like not super great. And always needed, let's be honest. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel refreshed and I feel um, excited. And I think oftentimes when I'm thinking about my own state of mental health and my own being now, I often compare it to myself maybe five or 10 years ago. And I definitely would not have been able to recognize the things that I can recognize now. Yeah. And I'm definitely more proactive about it. So yeah, I'm doing well. Awesome. So, yeah, I, I'm very well. So actually that's it. I, I think you framed it so nicely. Like that journey that you've gone through from maybe yourself 10, 15 years ago, like the goal of this is what we want to do is to have an honest and open conversation about your mental health journey and to get some insight into the tools and techniques that have helped you and are available and accessible to other people. And by discussing your journey, we hope to share and normalize the conversations about mental health as often people are not alone in these experiences. And we've, what we talked earlier just before is that, you know, what you're going to be talking about is around identity, your identity, people's identity, and identity in general, which I think is a fascinating topic. So over to you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, thinking about what to talk about, mental health is such a big concept, right? I mean, we have everything from meditation and yoga and breath work to just simply being mindful and aware of what's happening. And so I think for me, when I think about mental health, I think about how it's kind of changed over my life in relation to my identity. So I identify for all intents and purposes as a gay black male. And as you can tell from my shitty accent, I'm from the indigenous lands of the Native Americans, also known as the US of A. So um, I grew up in a very military um, suburban town. And so as a gay black kid, you can imagine my life was pretty easy. <laughs> but, um, exactly. So for me, when I think about my mental health journey, it really starts back in those early days of school. So mm. I can still remember the first bully I ever had. I'm not gonna say his name, but I can still remember the thing that he would say to me. And I haven't thought about this in a while, but I was six or seven years old and I'm 27 years old now. So two decades later, and I can still remember his face and what he said and where we were in the school, like, it's crazy, right? Like mm. two decades later, but that is part of mental health, right? Like things stick with us. And yeah. sometimes emotional scars can run deeper and often do them physical scars because it's something that doesn't always heal on your own like the physical body can. And so before you have any vocabulary or language around mental health, you're just dealing with it on your own. And especially as a kid, you don't really know what mental health is. You don't have an understanding of, okay, if you talk about these things, like this will be better for you. So for me, it goes back to probably 10 to 13 years of bullying for me, which I think really set me up for the work I had to do later on with my mental health. So just from every, every aspect of identity, whether it was because I was one of the few black kids in one of our classes. So at most there was two, if there was three, the quota was off and some other class was missing. And being a gay kid, like in a conservative military town, that's just not something that first of all you talk about, but second of all, that you have an opportunity to talk about it with other people. And so 
there's not other people that really look or feel like you. Yeah. And it's funny now because I'll see people all the time from high school and uni who like come out later on in life. And I just think to myself like, God damn it. Like, couldn't you just do that? Like when we were in the same spaces. Yeah. But I think as a kid dealing with those just forces within you is almost cognitive dissonance. All right. Like you're trying to, first of all, just exist in this world, which throws a lot at you as a young person. Yeah. But then also you're dealing with a racial identity that is marginalized institutionally across the board, whether it's education, healthcare, work, etc. Yeah. And then you're dealing with an unseen identity, which can be equally as damaging, you know, historically not as much as, you know, the black population, but no one aspect of my identity is greater on the whole, maybe in a given day, I might be experiencing more homophobia than racism. But yeah. as a kid going through puberty, trying to quote unquote, become a man and learn what that means as a black man in America, but then also what does it mean to be somebody who maybe likes the same gender? It's a lot of confusion, throw in an element of religion and spirituality because that was something and it still is part of my life. You have all these forces just working not often in tandem with each other. And so yeah. when you don't necessarily have people to talk to, I didn't have resources. I didn't feel comfortable talking to it about family. And I didn't have friends to talk to about it because I was bullied so much and I was on my own. So I can honestly say that I don't, I don't necessarily like the phrasing suicidal, but there were definitely days, especially around eighth grade. So we're talking uh, 12 or 13 years old where I would go to bed just thinking, I don't want to wake up tomorrow if it's going to be the same like today. So I, there was never, you know, I'm, I I'm, uh, worked as a resident advisor in university. I've taken first aid and, and mental um, health courses. So, you know, when it comes to suicide, knowing the actual, you know, steps that you look for, is there intent, et cetera, none of that existed for me. There were no means that were thought about. It was just that feeling of going to bed every night where I experienced something thinking, is this what life is? Yeah. And if it is, I just don't want to do it again tomorrow. And that must have been incredibly difficult. And I think your analogy earlier about the difference between the physical body and the mental side as well, like 12, 13, puberty, hormones are racing, your mind is forming and it's forming into those connections, which will, once we hit 18, 19, 20, are going to form the basis of our subconscious biases, et cetera, et cetera, and the way we look and perceive about the world. Like going through what you did and from every single angle, may that be, like you said, from bullying, may that be from loneliness, may that be from, you know, from, you know, identifying with your sexuality, understanding how as a, as a black person within a majority white situation, how that would, you know, how that would come to pass. And it's, I mean, it's, it's under, it's under, I mean, frankly, do you think that your brain had a chance to thrive? <laughs> to kind of, you know, cause that's so much going on and, you know, and so much to unpick later on at the same time. Yeah. So, all of that and then let's just for fun sprinkle on a little bit of depression and anxiety so, so like i again didn't have that vocabulary until i got to university or even the yeah. end of high school to be able to start recognizing those things but i did suffer from um anxiety and i still do and depression early on but again not knowing what that looked like or who to talk to about it yeah i for me think of it just like a balloon and I kept everything inside and it just kept expanding and expanding. And because I didn't know how to manage relationships because I didn't have many friends, mm -hmm. I got to a point where the only way for me to cope was to cut people out of my life. Yeah. So if somebody did something to me, somebody bullied me, I would delete them out of my phone, delete them off Facebook, um, you know, whatever social media we had at the time, it's so weird to think back to what we did and didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I almost said Instagram. I was like, wait, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> but I, I was deleting them from everything because it was the only way that I could suppress the negative emotions. So you do that for so many years and you're not developing long-term relationships with family or friends yeah. and you're bottling everything in and often it will get to a point where you 
just can't hold it in anymore. And yeah. so for me, I sometimes look back and I wonder like, how am I still alive? Like, how did mm -hmm. I survive that? I think spirituality plays a role in that for me. And I, and it is, you know, core to my beliefs, but even early on, I mean, trying to figure out a religion and your sexuality at the same time, when often those forces are opposed to each other, like, I mean, don't even get me started about like what that venture looked like, because it was like, well, I want to be a part of this organization, but they don't seem to want me mm. and no one else looks like me either. So what am I doing? <laughs> like, where do I belong? I never felt like I belonged anywhere because if we're being honest, and right, that's what we're here to do. Yeah, yeah. There is there is a level of homophobia in the black community, and there's a level of racism in the um, LGBTQ community. So it's like wherever I existed, I never really felt like I had a place. And so for most of my life, I, it was just me. And so it really took time for me to start being able to learn how to have relationships with people and how to communicate with people and. Uh, for me on this kind of mental health journey, I think one day that I will never forget that changed my life um, was a day that challenge day happened. So there used to be this TV show on MTV called If You Really Knew Me. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you ever heard of it, but um, have you heard of it? I have, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, I, spent, I, 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 I literally just flash back to my day sat on the couch watching MTV and, and MTV Cribs as well. <laughs> oh my gosh, throwback. So yeah, for anyone who's listening who's not familiar, basically uh, these kind of inclusion uh, leaders would come into like high schools and they would talk about what diversity and inclusion looks like. Um, and, you know, they had an activity called If You Really Knew Me, and it was an opportunity for people to grab the mic and say something to their peers that they didn't feel comfortable saying before. So it was a lot around uh, bullying um, yeah. and just trying to promote inclusion. And so for me, I, I watched that show and there were so many times where I would see episodes that I would think, oh my God, I, I wish that would happen at my school. And then it did. And so um, they, they, they weren't one of the films. So if you can imagine, this company is doing these workshops, I mean, throughout the, the US yeah. and um, not all of them are getting filmed. So they came to my school and I can still remember the leader's name, Dawn. I still have her name tag um, because that's how sentimental the experience was for me. Mm. I still remember just breaking down crying during the activity, if you really knew me. And somehow I powered through all the fear and I got up in front of everyone and basically said for the first time, I think it was, I sometimes mix up the date. I'm pretty sure that I was 17. We'll go mm. with that. But for the first time, I stood up in front of everyone and I said, I am so lonely and I have no friends. And if you really knew me, you'd know that it's sometimes unbearable to get through the day. And it That's was it. such a That must be so relief. hard to say that. It was such a release. And like at such a young age to be able to do that, I, I do have to think back and give myself props for that because oh, I- hell yes. I mean, in that moment, I was so terrified, but it was the first time that I said, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I don't feel like I have any friends. I don't feel, I, I don't feel loved. And that I think was a starting point for me because, you know, things didn't just end, right? Like things didn't just like automatically become easier, but then I started to be able to have a conversation around what those feelings looked like. And then leading into university, it gave me a platform to then be able to seek out the professional help I needed. And so I, I went to a university that offered a program for uh, free therapy. It was graduate students who were needing hours to get practicum. And so they would have, you know, cameras to monitor them, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was like, well, yeah, I come from a low income background. I worked umpteen jobs mm -hmm. during university. So like, I didn't have the opportunity to pay for professional care. And so when I had that opportunity, I took it. And I'm so glad I did, but I'm constantly thinking about, especially now in the work I do around anti-racism and diversity, mm. the racial disparities of access to mental health are just astronomical. And had it not been for that program, we would be having a very different conversation right now. I don't even know if I would have found your resource because if, had I not had that therapy intervention, I would not be the same person I am now. 
And, but, but, but at the same time, it's amazing that age 17, when you were, when you were able to stand, you were able to stand up and say that, like that takes a lot of guts and a, you know, it's a huge amount of bravery. Like in some respects, do you think that bravery was always there? It's an interesting question because um, it often reminds me of the question or the comment people will say uh, when you talk about your past, when it comes to like bullying and things like that or emotional trauma. It comes from a good place, but people will often say, oh, well, it made you stronger. And I actually, sometimes I push back on that because I don't think it made me stronger. I think it made me weaker. And I think doing the work afterwards is what made me stronger. And so was the bravery there? Well, you could argue yes, but not in the context of mental health and emotional stability. The bravery was there. I was a public speaker and yeah. I did debate team. And so I was um, at the age of 16 speaking in front of over a thousand, over 1500 people. Mm. Um, like that level of bravery and bravery and courage was there, but yeah. I, didn't ha- I didn't have anyone to talk to about anything, about the bullying at school, about the, my sexuality, about how I was feeling in terms of my race. I mean, I still remember after track practice one day in middle school, uh, two guys picked me up and threw me in the shower with all my clothes on. It was called showering and everyone laughed. And those are images I still have in my head occasionally. Yeah. Whenever I hear the name of one of those bullies, I automatically think of that moment. So yeah. for anyone who thinks of this idea as, you know, well, the things in your childhood make you stronger, mm. I just think you actually have to critically think about what you're saying because in a way you're almost rationalizing the, the negative experience of someone yeah. as opposed to just saying like, fuck, that was shit. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really sorry you dealt with that and, and being okay with saying, I don't know how that might've been for you, but I'm glad you know, you're opening up with me about it now. But yeah, I definitely think looking back, it's, I would be doing myself a disservice if I would say that like, oh yeah, I was, I was the bravest kid around. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah that I knew what I was doing at the time. It definitely wasn't the case. It's just now I have the vocabulary to talk. Yeah. And it sounds like at the time, if I can in any way, okay, I can't empathize, but sympathize and and try and put myself in your shoes, probably a combination of anger, desperation, someone saying to you that, 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 that the company there going, does anyone have anything to say, giving you a, giving you a, a voice or giving you the opportunity to speak and saying, actually, I'm fit to burst. That balloon is too big now. Yeah. And, like, it wasn't anger. I would say it was probably more of that, like, I don't know what else to do, that level of desperation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't anything that had formulated. Like, I never, even watching the TV show, I never thought to myself, oh, if they came to my school, this is what I would say. Yeah. It was just something where I knew, like, that would be such a great opportunity. And then it happened. And even when I knew it was coming to my school and I was participating, I kept thinking to myself, well, you know, this activity is coming and you're not going to say anything, right? And like that was probably just my anxiety mm. who i affectionately named kyle um we in my in my self-help book club um called shelf help we uh were reading a book and also my therapist kind of backed this up as well in a previous session around the idea of naming your fears and yeah. insecur- insecurities or the challenges you face because then you can able you can, you're able to like talk yourself out of some of those behaviors. And so um, the first thing that came to mind was this kid I used to hate in Boy Scouts, um, another one of my bullies, but um, yeah, it felt good to name my anxiety. And now I can look back and say, oh, that was just Kyle, like fucking me about or yeah. <laughs> trying to screw up my life. Actually, to, to be honest, I, th- I think, I think you, you put it very articulately, like, you know, it seemed, it, from, from what I understand, from what I've read, the, 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 there are many voices that go on in your head, and those voices are underpinned by different experiences, different emotions, and actually, it's very helpful to say, hold on, you, shut up, yeah. you know, just, just shut up, you know, I don't know what it is, I know I'm tired, I haven't, you know, I, you know, I drank too much last night, but I don't want you to talk now. Yeah. I mean, Sorry like, if you have to bleep all this stuff out, but yeah. one of my uh, affirmations. Go for it. Mirror, yeah. <laughs> um, so I have affirmations on, on my mirror that I read to myself while I brush my teeth when I'm good. Um, and I always brush my teeth, but when I'm good about my affirmations. <laughs> and um, they range from anything to I'm an heir of the most high, I am black and beautiful. Um, but 
I changed I am mentally resilient to Kyle can get fucked because yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, felt yeah. More, it felt more um, just but, relaxed and yeah, and entertaining. For but me. it's also what you probably think and how you say in your head. It's just like, Kyle, fuck off. You're yes. not welcome here at the moment. Yes, but seriously, <laughs> it, it's, it's something I can laugh about now, but I yeah. can tell you every day of my life, I'm thinking about con- things in the context of Kyle, right? Mm. Like my anxiety and I think, one of the things I'm working on now is, um, so I'm a, a writer and I'm working on a, a TV show around anxiety. Uh, it's gonna be a psychological thriller and I'm really excited about it. And one of the things I wanna do with it is just bring the conversation around anxiety and even depression away from this idea that, oh, it's something everyone experiences. Like, yes, everyone experiences anxiety, but not everyone has an anxiety disorder. And there's mm. a difference because anxiety is not just worrying right depression is not just sadness i mean you know all this and so i think it's again it comes from a good place when people want to enter in that conversation with you and they'll say oh yeah i have anxiety too but it's like some people don't understand like what it actually means i mean it can be debilitating it can actually prevent you from making decisions it can affect you at work it can affect you with your friendships and relationships so you know for me when i think about anything i do I'm constantly having to battle this other voice in my head that's constantly trying to keep me safe in a way, but it sees everything as a threat. So you often hear, obviously, you know, flight or flight or freeze and anxiety is, you know, a natural ability uh, or way for your body to prepare yourself for, you know, the the fears and the problems in life. And so, you know, often it's described as, you know, you see a lion, what are you going to do? But the thing with my anxiety and with a lot of people's is that everything in my life is a lion. So, you know, when it's a A or B decision for something that's inconsequential, my brain sees it as, oh, no, no, this is a lion coming to attack you. And so my body then has physiological responses as if I was being attacked by something. And so constantly having to battle that and then do that before I had the vocabulary to understand that when I was still going through therapy in uni or even before that in school, I seriously don't know how sometimes I am here now because like, what do you do with all of that as a kid? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's hard. And I, I never want this to come across as condoning suicide or anything like that because it's not, but I 100% fully understand why someone would take their own life. I, I've been in that place. I fortunately, there was something either looking out for me spiritually or um, someone looking out for me physically. I don't know what it was. And I'm so happy that I'm here to be able to talk about my story. But I completely understand why somebody just would find it unbearable to go on because mental health, especially for men, which is something really important for me, improving male access to mental health, it's just not talked about enough. And so like, I just want, and this is why I was so excited about this conversation, people to be more vulnerable, right? Whether it's talking about mental health or even when it's talking about the work I do with anti-racism education and the podcast that we're working on, which is around normalizing making mistakes and admitting to them and being okay with that and learning. We have to normalize being vulnerable because we all, have the ability to be vulnerable we just choose to mask it or subconsciously mask it without you know our own understanding but we have to start talking more about these things because that's when we realize that as cliche as it sounds we're all more similar than we are different and absolutely more connects us than divides us for the most part there are some people who are (laughs) very far right that i don't think there's a lot that connects us i would fully agree with that (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's interesting what you're saying like about normalize you know normalize this conversation it's why it's why we're having this this chat now and sometimes being vulnerable actually is probably being more of yourself like i've certainly found that when you are in the traditional you know and you know there's a i'm reading this great book at the moment called the descent of man um by grayson perry which is around the descent of masculinity and basically all the problems of masculinity and that masculinity puts on you have shells of yourself 
And part of that is not to be vulnerable, not to talk about emotion, not to talk about feelings, particularly, in, you know, in Britain, you know, from my, my own perspective, I think we are, Brits are known as people who are pretty stiff up a lift and don't really talk about things, um, frankly. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah. Dating British, dating British men has been oh so fun for somebody who really needs emotional <laughs> I feel like talking to brick walls. <laughs> But in that situation, actually peeling away those layers and being vulnerable, you know, you know, I found at the same time, you're actually more yourself and you can you feel more that you're communicating in a way that actually connects with what your, your thoughts are, not what you think people are perceiving you as or anything external. There's a, there's a much easier flow of from your internal through to, to your external without any modification in between. And I find oh, that... Man. I find that power. Yeah, 100%. I think, so something we talk a lot about in um, kind of anti-racism education is this idea of code switching and how um, even subconsciously marginalized communities are often trained just by culture and society around them to act a certain way in front of certain people. So you might've heard about this movie called uh, Sorry to Bother You, which is about this like black telemarketer who learns that he can get more sales by putting on a white voice. And so it's, it's a comedic take obviously on yeah. a serious topic, but code switching is very real. I mean, as somebody who's worked in white dominated professional environments, as a gay black male, and I should say white heterosexual dominated yeah. environments, as a gay black male, I'm constantly changing how I'm acting in front of other people. And it's not conscious. And it's not something where I'm purposely putting on a mask. It's just, you learn as a, mar as a member of a marginalized group, how to survive mm. and how to thrive in environments that aren't designed for you. And so having to wear your hair a certain way or having to dress a certain way to fit in can be really taxing on your mental health. And, and it's something we talk a lot about when we talk about microaggressions and how they have emotional and physical, like research shows microaggressions have physical impacts on health. Like the little things you can say that are filled with bias or subtly exclude people. All of these things that are just floating in the ether, they all affect mental health, right? And so it's so important that, you know, especially in the work that I do, I'm always saying that anti-racism is inextricably linked to mental health. And I know that firsthand because my mental health has been impacted so much by my identity, the various aspects of my identity, right? And, and when I talk about identity, everyone has an identity, everyone has an element of diversity, right? So even if you're a white heterosexual male, don't let anything I ever say make you think that you aren't unique or valid, right? But you also have to accept the realities of the world that a lot of the institutionalized structures of the world are designed to benefit you. And so for me, I'm always trying to get people to talk about mental health beyond just the conversation around, you know, yoga and meditation. Those are great yeah. applications of improving mental health, but we really need to talk about what is our own role in other people's mental health, right? Like yeah, it's not yeah, to yeah. say that everyone needs to be responsible for everyone around them, but what are we doing that could be impacting someone's mental health, right? Like, can you imagine yeah. that the bullies or the people who mistreated me were listening to this now and realized that there are points in my life where their actions would have caused me to make a decision. Like, I'm not gonna put blame on anyone, the decision's with me, but often there is a level of blame that goes around. And so I think it's such an important conversation talking about being able to be vulnerable, because yes, it is being more of yourself, but it's also, um, it's also allowing you to just exist and bring your full self to an, an environment. And so uh, one of the things that I loved when I was a resident advisor, uh, living with the first years and being able to be a mentor was that in the beginning, we were able to kind of shape our own um, kind of activities with them. So mm -hmm. learning this from the, the challenge day uh, activities that I went through, we had this activity called the man box, which I'm sure you've heard of. I mean, it's so tried and true. For, for women, obviously, it's the lady flower, but you draw this box and then you get participants to just throw things in the box. What can you and can you not do? So, you know, men can't cry, that goes in the box. Men have to be strong, that goes in the box. And after we did all that, then I ripped this huge post-it note and I said, fuck the man box. You guys are allowed to exist freely and however you want and I'm here to support you. And that actually became the name of our group chat for the entire year, fuck the man box. And it was great because from an early point in the year, 
I was letting people know, look, this is university. This is your time to be who you are. And I want you to know that you are with somebody who knows that and who is here to support you. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to, to get people to, to get beneath the surface. Um, and people don't often like it, like, especially with like dating, I talked about that before, but like one of my favorite questions to ask somebody early on is how do you rank these elements of a relationship? So physical, sexual, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And I often find that people will say like, oh, that's a really deep question early on, but I'm a very emotionally deep person. And I think that level of vulnerability is not something that, especially men, but people are used to having early on. Whereas I'm the opposite. Like I went from not being able to talk about anything to now I'm so vulnerable that some people would say, you need to hold your cards close to your chest. But for me, when I learn something about somebody that's beneath the surface or that they don't talk about often, I feel like more connected to them, yeah. right? It's more endearing. And so I think vulnerability has more benefit than it has, you know, ne negatives. And I just don't think we're framed to think of it in that way. And how, going back to that, going back to the challenge day as well, when you were incredibly vulnerable, like a question that popped into my mind was, how did, how did your peers react? And yeah. did it change? So that's a great question. So I got hugs, right? I got people saying like, oh, they had no idea. Um, but as I mentioned, like the emotional trauma didn't just stop. No. Right? Like, yes, people were aware of it. And this also was like in March of that year. So the school year ends in like June. And like, it was good that people were made aware of it. And it was more for me. It's almost like forgiveness, right? It's like more for you than the other person. Yeah. So it was more for me to get it off my chest. Mm. And at the time, I'm, I'm trying to think like, most of the reaction was from other students of mine who then treated me a little bit nicer, but it was more of like being, you know, pity nice, which was fine. Like I, I, at, at that point in my life, I would have taken pity nice over nothing. Yeah. But I don't actually remember like teachers coming back or reaching out and saying like, here are some resources. And I think, really? but I don't think that's unique to my school because, mm -hmm. uh, so at the beginning of the summer, uh, before I started the Anti-Racist Social Club and before I started writing a sitcom, I was actually doing mental health research. And I interviewed about 22 men over the course of two weeks, just around their mental health and what limits them in their engagement and where on their journey they feel like intervention would have been really helpful. And I talked to uh, people as young as 10 years old. I used to babysit a lot. So I had access to like a younger talent pool. Mm. We're not talent pool, but you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. research pool. And um, I talked to people older as well, but specifically in the conversations I had with a 10 year old and a 16 year old, I asked them around, what is the vocabulary and what, is, what are the activities in your schooling system that relate to mental health? it's touched on in the surface, but it's still not where it needs to be. And so I can still remember um, after this challenge day thinking, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, like doing these kinds of workshops. And it's funny now because I'm kind of doing that tangentially with the anti-racism work because anti-racism is intersectional. So it's about diversity and inclusion across the board. And so there's an element of mental health and bullying that gets touched on. Um, and I would love to do this work more in schools, but it's needed because I don't think that, and, and we can't expect a, uh, teachers to have be equipped with this knowledge. This is not a knock at all on the public education system. I am so fortunate for public education. And I think mm -hmm. it needs more funding. I, I, I don't understand why celebrities and athletes get paid more than the people who are actually changing the world. Yeah. Um, and that goes for the NHS, for teachers, et cetera. But politics aside, um, I think that like teachers just aren't equipped with the resources they need, right? Like we're expecting them to be mothers or fathers, counselors, educators. Yeah. It's a lot, right? And yeah. so I think there needs to be more education for teachers, but also for students, more activities, more curriculum. I mean, mental health should be as important than learning trigonometry, mm. right? Like, mm. I mean, let's be honest, how many people are actually going to need calculus? Now, I'm saying that as somebody yeah. who loved calculus and did really well at it, but I don't need it at all in my line of work now. Yeah. But I really needed things that 
could have saved my life, like mental health. So yeah. we need to focus on, yes, you know, the history of English and the sciences, especially the sciences, yeah. especially the sciences these days. But a silent nod to the sciences for me. <laughs> I like that. But mental health needs to be a part of that, right? Like yeah. we all have physical education and we all learn how to play dodgeball, but why didn't we also have meditation or stretching and yoga? Or yeah. why didn't we have conversations about mental health early on? And I think those would have been the things that would have helped me earlier. And so, yeah, I think the response from that challenge day was a, more of a level of pity and understanding mm -hmm. or sympathy, yeah. but it wasn't enough for me to feel like, yeah, okay, cool, this problem's been solved. Like yeah. I really needed that professional support. And going back to that analogy that, you know, the, the, the difference between your the, the physical body and the and your mind and your mental is that, you know, if you if you scrape yourself, it will heal. It will heal back to what it was. If you break something, it'll be reset. It'll be reset into back what it was. But if you have stuff going on in your head that doesn't reset to what it was, it changes and you think and perceive things in a different way as a consequence. So effectively, like how I visualize the brain is, is, is frankly, a lot of scars, a lot of scars and your way that you perceive and you think the way that you interact with people is, is not as a fresh brain. It is at a, it is at a fully scarred brain. It's almost as if every, every kind of bad moment of bullying um, that you've had led to, you know, your finger being broken and reset in the wrong way. So it's, I mean, frankly, it is, it's, it's not as useful as it could be. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about when I, when I respond to people who are saying, oh, all of this made you stronger. Because to your point, it's yeah. like, you just can't see how weak it's made me. But um, I think it's here in the UK as well, but especially in the States, there's this joke that, you know, no matter what the injury, you just go to the nurse's office and she'll give you an ice pack. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> concussion, you're bleeding, no matter what it is, just go to the nurse. But what's the equivalent of going to the nurse for an ice pack when it comes to mental Absolutely. and emotional yeah. damage, right? It's yeah. someone, someone's bullied you and there's often this narrative that, well, you know, either stand up to your bullies, which that is a whole conversation for another day around yeah. what are we telling like kids, like they need to stand up, yes, but what are the repercussions of that? Like sometimes it gets worse, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then also people don't always know how to stand up. So when we're talking about like mental health and especially bullying, the narrative is often like, oh, well, telling somebody is gonna make it worse, which it often does. And so then what do you do with it, right? Like if you can't tell your teacher or you tell your teacher and you're afraid that they're going to then tell the other person or yeah. how this works, like, this is a lot for kids to process. And so I think early intervention in mental health is so important, especially when it comes to identity. Because, you know, I often try to think, was my mental health and especially my depression and anxiety a result of my issues with identity or was it the opposite way around? And I lean more towards the former, like my issues or challenges with, you know, coming to terms with my sexuality and coming to terms with my race in an all white environment, um, those caused or contributed to my anxiety and depression for sure. But it also is a reciprocal relationship, right? Because then yeah. the anxiety then just perpetuates all these things that you're thinking or seeing and perceiving. And the mind is a tricky place. I yeah. mean, like we don't even realize subconsciously how much our brain does mm. like we're just starting to understand the full I, I think i saw something maybe we understand 40 percent of what the brain can do I, i'm not don't quote me on that but we are we are eons away from understanding fully what this thing in our skull can do and and part of that yes is holding on to emotional scars um part of that is resilience as well but part of that is also like coping mechanisms mm. right and that is where I had to start unlearning those as an, at yeah. an older age, like cutting people out of my life completely. At the time, that was a Band-Aid to a much bigger problem. That was like putting a Band-Aid on a dam, trying to prevent water from going through a crack. Yeah. And at the time, it got me across the finish line and able to survive, literally. Mm. But like, there is a lot more work that I'm still constantly doing. And that's another thing, is mental health as a journey. So it is still something I'm constantly working on, but there is so much that 
we have to learn and help people understand about our mind because our mind does a lot of coping and it thinks it's helping us, but in actuality, it's, it's not. And we have to be aware of it and, and try to intervene. And in, in, in going back to your thought about understanding the, the brain, how it works, like the more research that comes out is in the fact, in fact that what we perceive is, is represented in our brain. So it's not a direct correlation necessarily between what is actually outside of our bodies. So effectively, everything happens in the brain. And I find that when people talk about mental health, and there's that, it's a kind of a small section of your life. It's actually, for me, it's, it's, it is your entire life. It's everything. Ever, and like you said, there is, there's a massive recipro reciprocity, if that's even a word. Between, yeah, reciprocity yeah, it's going back and forward. For example, for you, you were going back and forward in some respect around identity. But then in another respect, it would have been around your, 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 your articulation, your, your, your vocabulary. I can't, I can't remember which philosopher said it, but there's something that's always, um, always um, touched me or touched on me is this phrase that language is skin. Mm. I think this is a really interesting way to look at it when you're talking around prejudice as well. Is that, and for you, it's very clear that you are extremely articulate and you have developed a vocabulary for you to articulate and appreciate and to, to communicate what is go what are those complex things that are going, that are going on with, um, inside of you. Now, take that to a 12, 13 year old, then like you said, what can teachers do? Well, teachers might be able to, yes, they might not be able to deal with, with difficult mental health disorders or mental ill health, but what they can do is start having these conversations and enabling people to start to articulate what they are feeling. Because frankly, like you said, standing up to a bully, yeah, it has huge, you know, it has lots of, it has lots of, you know, often adverse side effects. But if you have a conversation with someone and say, look, like whatever's going on, please, can we just have a talk? If you are able to have that back and forth and are able to articulate and suspend judgment of what that other person is, is saying in terms of their beliefs, in terms of their assumptions, just get them to listen to what you have to say. And if you can articulate that and you can listen back, my God, that could be a great healer. I mean, language is so important. Yeah. So important. And again, I'm not going to get into the argument of, um, you know, do people cause other people to commit suicide or is it on them? You know, you, you have the examples of like, um, there was a, a gay student who was, you know, filmed um, engaging in perfectly normal behavior and ended up committing suicide because of the scorn and the, the retribution that that got. And, you know, people get on both sides of the argument and say, oh, well, you know, it was his decision. And then some people say, oh, well, you know, you can get so overwhelmed, you can't manage it. But I think that language does have to be something that we we can't take it for granted we have to understand that our words have power and we hear it so often but like i just as you were saying that i was thinking like would my life be different if i had this vocabulary that i have now and i was able to talk to my bullies back then like after that incident of being thrown in the shower if i was able to actually stand up and say like hey i just want you to know like this makes me feel like shit and like these are the kinds of things that lead people to taking their own lives. Like, what would that, like, are we able to process that as even the receiving end of that? Would a bully be able to like think through that? Because oftentimes they're just yeah, yeah. projecting their own shit. Absolutely. But also like, is it, is it appropriate or is it reasonable is a better word for us to expect somebody so young to have something that I didn't gain until, you know, two decades after the start of my education. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot of my mental health journey has been through travel. I've been very fortunate to be able to travel around the world. And as a result of old jobs or um, after, after uh, Trump, that's all I'll say, uh, 2016 was just a fucked year. Here in the UK as well with Brexit. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was working a block and a half from the White House and I just I couldn't deal with it. I needed to get out. And that was, that was my mental health journey, uh, another episode um, in the journey. And for me, I, I packed up everything and I just left and I started traveling and I took a little sabbatical and ended up in Australia because it was the farthest place away <laughs> that I could think of. And when I look back on that time, that year and a half, that was so crucial to my own understanding of self and my own levels of self-esteem. And that wasn't something that 
I think could have come through therapy on its own. I think just having to exist in the world and to be able to take what I learned through therapy, but mm -hmm. then apply it in my everyday life, whether I was an au pair or whether I was bartending on a beach bar or whether I was acting or doing stand-up comedy, like I was just doing everything and anything that I ever wanted to do. And I felt so free and being in that space of being vulnerable and free allowed me to love myself more than I ever have. And when I think about myself now, I mean, when I read my morning affirmations and I read, I'm black and beautiful, I actually believe it. Mm. I actually believe those words. And that's not something that I would have believed in middle school and high school or even at university. And it took me years to get to that point where I actually could look at my body and say, damn, I'm fine. Like yes. anyone would be lucky to date me. Yeah. That wouldn't have happened at a younger age. And I don't know how much education would have even gotten me to that point. So I think it's a mix of earlier intervention and also experience that comes yeah. later on in life. But it's not like one is more important than the other. I mean, if I had to choose one, I would say earlier intervention is so yeah. key to change things before they start. Because really, at the end of the day, the experience was helping me get to a point where I should have been early yeah. on, right? Like we should be growing up thinking that we're beautiful and confident and intelligent and being able to vouch for ourselves and not be in the space of insecurity and, and fear and et cetera. You, you, that journey of learning often comes through those negative experiences at the same time as well. Like, I, I, I always imagine, I say like, what would I, what would my, I, you know, what would I say to my 12 year old, 13 year old self? And actually would I have changed any of the, the, you know, the situations or struggles that I had perceived and I definitely would have, I definitely would not have been taken on the bully. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. But at the same, but yeah, yeah, I completely agree. But at the same time, you can't give people the tools at 12 year old and say, look, you've got everything you need. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Like everything in life, you know, I've started to reframe, you know, sometimes you'll say like, oh, I'll take the L, right, for the, mm -hmm. for the loss. Well, like reframing that as L for lesson, just that just changes so much, right? Like any negative experience should just be a lesson for you. Um, but I don't want that to take away from the damage that those negative yeah. experiences can have. And so I think, it, again, it goes back to the idea of like, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Like mm, yeah. I'm 27 years old and I have a better sense of self than I've ever had. I love my body and I love who I am. I started to realize that my body is my friend. I mean, it's literally carrying me through a pandemic. And so I need to like treat it well. Yeah. And I have a better sense of relationships, better sense of network. That came from just having stability, being in one place, but also being in an environment for the most part, which is a little bit more conducive to vulnerability and just openness, you know, being in a more liberal city. It's not without its problems. I've had I've had terrible experiences, but I think, yes, like the experiences that I've had, you know, you can't change them. So there's no point in even thinking about it in the sense that they are what brought me to the point of where I am now, right? Like, could I go back and think of any benefits from one of the experiences that were quote unquote negative? Maybe, but would that serve me now? No. Right. Like yeah. it, equally, it doesn't serve me to wallow in those experiences. Right. Like it took me a while to be able to separate forgiveness from the idea of saying it's okay. Yeah. Like validating the experiences, like those experiences were shit. Yeah. No one should ever have to deal with bullying or homophobia yeah. or racism. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up and I struggled and, and one, I'm, able to say that now and not feel like I'm playing the victim card or the race card or the gay card like people have told me, right? That from a while was me having to realize that, no, no, that's just their fragility projecting mm -hmm. onto me. So one, being able to say, yeah, my childhood wasn't picture perfect, mm -hmm. but also not staying in that and saying, but I'm doing better now and yeah. focusing on what I can do for myself, but also for others. And I have a vision board um, where I put either quotes that I love or things that I'm looking forward to or want to manifest or whatever. And one of them says, be the person you needed when you were younger. Mm. And I'm constantly thinking about what can I do to use my experience to help other people, not yeah. just now, yeah. but also in the past, because yes, like 
the past needs to be a school, not a prison. Yeah. And so I no longer spend time thinking about, oh, well, if that hadn't happened or if this had happened instead, all I can do now is say, yeah, that was shit. Yeah. But what am I going to do about that now? And it's, and it, it's interesting, like just, yeah, you're saying about going, you know, the, you know, the, that argument that the past making you stronger, it is, it's bullshit. Like, like you said, like no one, no one wants to go through, no one should go through homophobia. No one should go through racism and having an argument like that in some respects justifies, you know, yeah, it reinforces the experience. Yeah. Which actually is the, you know, it's the experience, which is the issue, not the actual lesson that going through it. Yeah. Right. It's, it's amazing. You'd be able to c come through those experiences into that, into, in, in, into the articulate guy I see before me and here before me, right? But, you know, that doesn't justify the behavior that was, that was pushed on you yeah. through, through, through no fault of your own. Exactly, and it's like, yes, reframing losses as lessons is great, but it doesn't mean that it minifies, minimizes the impact of the loss or the bad yeah. experience, right? Like we need to be able to acknowledge that experiences can be bad, although we can learn from them. So. I don't, yeah, when I, when I talk or, you know, engage with self-help material or mental health material, um, there are some things that I struggle with accepting uh, as, as, as valid. I think uh, there's two things that come to mind. One is this idea that, um, you know, we just need to think about positively about everything and our life would be better, right? Like, we, we can't overcorrect for all the negative experiences in our life by just staying positive all the time because we're not actually, like, accepting the problems that we've faced and it's okay to do that i think it's just about not staying in them so yeah on the one hand it's like we need to start saying that it's okay that we experience negative things but that we're going to move forward with them and not yeah. be trapped by them and i think the other thing that i struggle with is this idea that well you know you can change your life you have the power within and every it, it you know it's all in your uh, perception and all in your action because it takes me back to this conversation around identity and most often the people who are saying that like anything's possible if you just think it kind of mentality is often people coming from a place of privilege often it's, it's yeah. white men or women who are saying like oh yeah you just have to make the decisions in your life and you'll be fine and it's like yeah. because well, I'm 20 miles ahead anyway yeah, and it's like, yeah. I'm a, I'm a, there are so many barriers for me already as a gay black man. Mm -hmm. And it's like, now you want to add on this like commentary or this language around like, well, if you just decide you want to do it, it will happen. It's like, yeah. no, no, there are like institutionalized things that like prevent me from having the same opportunities. Yeah. And so when I talk about mental health, when I talk about anti-racism, I'm, I'm just constantly trying to get people to understand that everything is linked. Everything yeah. is woven together and it's all intersectional. I mean, you can't, you know, in the work I do with businesses, you can't have a great place to work just based off of the perks and the benefits you offer, right? Yeah, like you yeah. have to have an environment where people feel they can bring their full selves to work. Yeah, yeah. That means mental health, but yeah. that also means an identity. So like last weekend was World Mental Health Day mm. and I was on an IG Live talking around anti-racism and mental health. And I made a post that was, talking about the very thing I'm talking about now, which is, this is all connected, right? This is, mm. this. I can't just separate, oh, my experience as a black person and as a gay person and as someone who, you know, suffers from mental health challenges. I can't separate all of that. It's all together. And so we have to start building a world as, mm. as big as that goal seems. We have to start building a world and it starts with our own network where people know that they can come to us in a state of vulnerability people know that then they won't be you know, judged for it. And we have to start having more of these conversations just, just so that people realize that they're not alone in something. Because that for me is constantly the thing I still struggle with the most. I mean, we, we've talked about a lot, we've talked about my mental health journey and there are a lot of positives to glean from it. But I think one of the experiences I had most recently during quarantine um, which somehow I'm managing to get through. Um, it's probably some of the meds that I'm taking, which is yeah. another conversation. Like for me, early on, I had, there's this stigma around mental health, but then even beyond that, like taking medication to then support that mental health. Mm. But that's not the conversation we have with physical health. Like if there's something wrong, you're quick to take a pill for it, or you have diabetes yeah. or something else, you're, you're quick to take medicine. 
But when it comes to mental health, oftentimes the narrative is, oh, just talk through it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's not enough because sometimes brains are just chemically imbalanced and they need some support. And so I'm very open about the fact that I'm finally getting the professional help that I needed all mm-hmm. along, which was in part therapy, but also in part medication and being mm-hmm. able to help my brain reset some of that chemical imbalance that has impacted me in everything from you know, the amount of time I was taking to complete tests in school or yeah. how much of my work was being impacted by my anxiety. And so, um, you know, for me, it's, it's just constantly thinking through this lens of, yes, we need to create spaces for people to be more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And we need to create spaces where people don't feel shame and guilt having conversations around mental health, around um, just what they're doing and existing in their everyday lives. And so for me, at the beginning of this, um, this quarantine, um, you know, things were fine. I was doing a lot of virtual and, you know, virtually social events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the one thing about, the one pro about being someone who's a germaphobe, actually have germaphobia because of my anxiety and OCD, is that I was already prepared for this coronavirus. Like there was nothing that was new for me. Like people were like, oh my God, you need to get all these cool keychains to open doors and you need to do all this gloving and all this stuff. And I was like, bro, like I have already not touched my face for decades because I'm afraid of germs. Like this is nothing new for me. I was shopping without gloves because I knew I wasn't touching my face. I've always been opening doors with my elbows and pushing elevator buttons with my elbows. So like I was ready for this, but There was a point where um, I had a rift with one of my best friends and I was feeling really lonely. And it was a reminder of the fact that mental health is a journey. Uh, It's one of the affirmations I have on on my mirror is I'm not alone because that is the deepest feeling to this day that I ever feel. I'm 27 years old and whenever I start to feel lonely, I get to a place where if I get trapped in it, it is really hard to get out of. And on the plus side of that, at the end of this quarantine, when I was starting after this rift, I started to feel it. I was aware of it. And I was really proud of myself because I haven't been that aware of that before. And so that for me was like, okay, you've grown. I mean, when you think about who you were in the past and who you are now, you wouldn't even have been aware mm-hmm. of these feelings now. And then I was able to be proactive about it. I actually organized an event because I know that, you know, with my depression, it makes me not want to be social, but that's almost the exact thing I should do is get out. Yeah. And so I was proactive and I said, okay, let's organize something. And I was able to like snap out of it much quicker than I've ever been able to. And it's not to say like, oh, well, that's your quick fix, right? You know, Mm -hmm. it's all easy from here, but I still can feel the weight of that young kid who is experiencing all of these challenges with his identity and mental health. Mm -hmm. Anytime I feel alone, because that was something that bullies said to me, you have no friends. And it was true. And, you know, it caused relationship issues with my older sister because like, I always wanted to be friends with her friends. And she was always like, you know, oh, this is annoying kid who wants to, you know, hang out with us. I mean, we're fine now, but you know, you have no friends, you're annoying. That was something someone said to me on a daily basis. Right. And even to this day, if someone says that I have to immediately process that and filter it and realize they're not trying to hurt me. They have no idea about my past. They're not even saying it in the same context. Like that is a lot of work that my brain is doing just to have a conversation with somebody. Mm. And there was something I saw on Instagram the other day that was so great around signs of anxiety. And one of them was talking about like blankly staring off or something into the distant. And I often find myself when I'm having conversations with people that I'm closest with, especially my best friend, I will sometimes tell him, can you give me a second? Like I'm actually processing something right now and I'm Mm. not giving you my full attention. Mm. That's not something I would ever have been able to do years ago. And that's that level of self-awareness that I'm just coming into and and I'm still developing, but it's like that feeling of loneliness that I can sometimes get as deep as that may be. It's like, what can I do to prevent me from getting there? Or once I realize it, what can I do moving forward? But don't at all take anything I've said and I don't think you would or anyone would yeah. have as everything's fine now because like I yeah. said there are still emotional triggers that I still deal with every day yeah. and this one happened like a month ago where I was feeling really low and it's a scary space because you start to remember your past and yeah. some of that stuff starts to come up and so 
I, I just think I'm so fortunate to be able to be vulnerable with people in my life. And part of that was just me from the outset saying like, basically setting the standard, not consciously, but like through conversation and engagement from the early onset of any relationship or friendship that I have, like I'm very open and vulnerable from the beginning. And I think just setting that bar, yeah. it not only encourages other people to get there with you, but it also makes the relationship more fulfilling for me and for other people because I can, without any fear of judgment, say to my friends, hey, can you give me a minute? <laughs> I'm actually processing something you just said or processing something I just saw and, and I can't focus right now and I just need a minute. And so final question. Sure. Taking where you are now in terms of how you cope in those difficult situations, like what would you say to your 12-year-old self? Yeah. Oh, great question. It's, uh, I'm not going to give you the Matthew McConaughey answer because that would, that would get a little confusing for all of us. But um, <laughs> I think to my 12-year-old self, I mean, that's a tough one. The, so many things are coming to my head right now around like, oh, it gets better. It's such a cliche. Yeah. But then on one hand, that almost just like placates the experience. Um, so I think for me, what I would tell myself is you've got this. Like you can do this. I needed, I needed that. I mean, going back to our conversation around bravery, I didn't have self-esteem when I was growing up. I, I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin for a lot of reasons, pun intended. And so I think just being able to tell myself like, you will get through this, you will survive this, would have been so helpful. And, and there were some elements of that narrative. I, I remember my mom, um, and now that I think about it, you know, credit to her because, you know, sometimes you don't always understand how to have these conversations with your kids, but she got me a book and went to a book signing and waited in line to get a signature on this book. And it was called, um, the geeks will inherit the earth. Yeah. yeah. And that was the kind of narrative that I needed as a younger kid, like high school bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, everyone has a tough time. Well, not everyone. There are some popular kids that have a great mm -hmm. time, but high school is bullshit. And it is not a sign of your value or your worth. And you just need to get into the real world, quote unquote, or get around people who are more developed and to be able to realize who you are. But why can't it be that we just need to make high school and middle school yeah. that environment where people can be their full self. So yeah, the, the I, advice I would give myself is you, you, you can do this and yeah. you will get through it. And I, I, I think about now, sometimes that's what I tell myself now is like, even with these affirmations, you are mentally resilient. That is me telling myself that like, I can get through this. And after my morning affirmations, this is the last thing I say, I say, today is yours. So back yourself and make it count. And so it's something that I would tell my 12 year old self. And it's something yeah. I still tell myself now is today is yours back yourself. And also, yeah. And to, you know, to really, if we're going to early intervention, we can give people the tools, we can give people the resources, but reality is if you can give someone or support them into developing their own full self-esteem self. and sense yeah. of self and confidence that that at the time, can be enough to guide them on their own way to go through whatever their journey they're going to go through, but with a sense of, I've got this. And that's exactly the same mentality I take in my anti-racist work and the anti-racist social club is mm. I'm creating spaces and resources for people to then come into a space where they can learn because anti-racism, just like mental health is something you have to do the work with, right? And a lot of the work is internally as well. And so, it's all about creating spaces for people to come to vulnerably and say, either I fucked up or I don't know what to do, or I want to be an ally. I don't know how, and to be able to create resources for them and that learning. So that's exactly the mentality I have in everything that I do and, and why the work I do is, is the work that I love. And um, so I was very thankful to, to be able to be here and talk about my journey. So yeah, thanks for having me. Well, oh, well I, thank you so much for a fascinating, insightful conversation. I mean, to, to, to be able to have a conversation on so many dimensions as well and to hear your story growing, you know, um, going from school, a very difficult time at school through to challenge day where in some respects that, you know, that catalyzer or always, always a, a, a pillar in the ground of saying, I've got this.
or I'm starting to get this, moving on to university, and then now where you are today, like, you know, talking to uh, um, 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 corporates, running the anti-racist anti -racist social club. Like, I mean, I, as I've said, I've listened to all your videos and I would encourage all listeners to, 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 to go onto the website, which is, yeah, so it's www.theantiracistsocial.club and we've got over 500 resources for learning, podcast movies, a great filter feature where we've tagged every single item based off the topic, what age it's appropriate for. And by we, I mean, I had to go through and manually do all of that. Um, and, and that is a testament to when we're talking about mental health. I mean, talking about anti-racism as a black person is not always easy. I mean, I posted one of those videos that you saw on YouTube and before I removed the comment section, I thought, oh, well, let me create safe spaces and allow anyone to comment. The internet trolls got to it within 45 seconds and they commented and spelled out the N-word in the comments. And so I love the work that I do, but mm. it's constantly reminding me that mental health is so important. So check in on your marginalized friends or your friends in marginalized communities, especially now. I mean, we've gone through a lot this year. And so just check in on them and there's always something you can do. So check out our website, follow us on Instagram. I'm sure he'll post all the links with this. So um, yeah, we're happy to have you in the club and thanks so much for having me in this conversation. Awesome, honestly, thank you so much for having us. We, we, we really appreciate it. Cheers, have a good day. And thank you to everyone listening. You can subscribe to us on most major podcast platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just search for Sidekick Community or Psychic Stories and we'll pop up. Thanks so much again, Eki.